Okay, team, exciting news. Your buddy Matt here has finally realized a lifelong dream of becoming a professional athlete at the tender age of 47. Uh, we have a new partner, Vessel Surfboards and Paddleboards, and they are sponsoring me as I begin a quest to paddleboard from here to Catalina and back next year during the Catalina race. I believe it's about 30 miles, but I got to check, you know, 30 miles, 40 miles, all the same. I'm going to get it done. And uh, that makes me a professional athlete getting paid to do a sport. So by technicality, I'm a professional athlete and I'm very excited about that. Vessel Surfboards and paddle boards are excellent. I've used a few different paddle boards, and this one is by far the best. My kids use their surfboards, they're excellent. So, support our sponsor, go out and try them. That's Vessel V E S L. All right, guys. Okay, guys, thanks for joining me. Uh, we got a fantastic guest coming up in a few minutes, Andre Antonopoulos, and he's the world's biggest Bitcoin expert. Luckily, I started dealing in Bitcoin in 2014 after hearing him on Joe Rogan, and uh, I'm so glad I did. And maybe after you hear him today, you'll do the same. So we're getting into that in about 10 minutes. So, you know, if you don't want to listen to me run my mouth, just maybe fast forward about 10 minutes. Um, I wanted to have... Andre on today because we've got a massive mess on our hands in this country. The size and power of government and their reach into our private lives is way out of hand. And Bitcoin and blockchain technology, that might be our pathway to freedom. I mean, right now in this country, we got a problem in that people do not trust their government. And rightfully so in a lot of cases. They've been spying on us for years. People don't trust their media, they don't trust the politicians, and there's 70 million people out there who don't trust that the election was fair. Trust is broken in this country, and once trust is gone, it's hard to get that back. Now, um, I'm not going to speculate. You know, I have no idea if this election was fair or not. To pretend to know would be dishonest and irresponsible. All I know is that we do have a trust issue, and we need full transparency into the process if there's any hope to restore trust in the election process. Um, you know, I think when the, the dust settles, I'd be very surprised if the election was flipped, but that's not really the point. But I mean, what the hell happened? What, what happened with this election? Our bureaucrats told us over and over that this was the most important election of our lifetime, yet they somehow were massively unprepared for the unprecedented 80 million mail-in ballots. You spent months telling us to vote by mail. How could you not be prepared to handle it? And, you know, first of all, why are we still voting like it's 1980, where you walk into a polling place and check a paper ballot with a number two pencil? I mean, is this fourth grade? Am I taking an aptitude test? And like that wasn't bad enough. Now you want us to vote by snail mail? When's the last time any of you out there mailed someone a friggin' letter? For me, it was probably 1989 when I was writing a love letter to a girl I was too shy to call on the phone. I mean, I can send thousands of dollars to my wife's family in the dictatorial-run country of the Philippines, and it's going to get there safely. I can sell a house on eBay if, if I had a house to sell. I can go on the dark web and I can order a gram of heroin, a midget hooker, and the murder of my sister-in-law. All on the dark web. And all of that will happen faster than mailing in a paper ballot to a bunch of bureaucratic government nerds who haven't gotten one thing right in the last 30 years. 
but you're telling me I can't vote on my phone? Really? I mean, look, people are suspicious. Trump swung out to an early lead. People go to bed Tuesday night and it looks like he's going to win. They wake up Wednesday and he's going to lose. Whether it's all legit or now, legit or not, they needed this to be clean. And even if Biden earns back the trust of the people, let's get beyond that. Let's 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 say the the vote was fair. Trump um, is out of there on January twentieth, and everybody accepts Joe Biden into their hearts. Even then, the establishment has a giant problem on their hands. Donald Trump was not the cause of our problems. He got elected in 2016 because middle America was hurting for years and Trump was the first person to speak up for them instead of lecturing them. And I know you don't want to hear that, but this is true and I know it's to be true because I come from middle America. I've been in California for 20 years, but I know those people. In 2008, the economy failed and millions of Americans lost their jobs. And what did the government do? Oh, they just handed a trillion dollars to the banks and said, fuck you to struggling middle Americans. Those people haven't recovered. If they still have a job, their wages have fallen. And a large percentage of them are dying from opiate abuse because the government helped pharmaceutical companies sling their dope while throwing people in cages for smoking a plant that I literally grow in my backyard legally. And in all that time since then, Instead of addressing people's problems, trying to help them, the media and the celebrities and rich coastal elites, they would hang out of their ivory towers, point down at these people and yell, acknowledge your privilege. Huh? Dude, I lost my job three years ago. My wife left me for the neighbor with a double wide trailer and my dog is out back snorting lines of oxy with my daughter who my wife left me with. What's this privilege you want me to acknowledge, Michelle Obama? I mean, it's, it's, look, nobody ever once in all of human history has been convinced to change their way of thinking because someone pointed and yelled at them. It's never happened. Telling people to acknowledge their privilege and calling them racist doesn't make racism go away. It fosters resentment and hatred. And that's what happened. And and the bar now for what's considered racist has been lowered to such a ridiculous level that every white person on earth is racist. And I'm serious. If, if you read the New Liberal Bible, White Fragility, I read it. I like to read. I read it. It clearly states that if you are white, you're either racist or you're in denial about being racist. Those are your only two options, white people. I mean, do you think that approach is going to solve racism? Does that seem like a way to bring people together? Our privileged class has spent the last four years since Trump got elected mocking these people and calling them deplorable and racist and stupid. And it comes from the top down. Obama said they were clinging to their Bibles and guns. Hillary called them irredeemable deplorables. And Joe Biden called them the racist dregs of society. So then Donald Trump comes along with his tiny little hands, his giant ego, and his third grade vocabulary. And he says, I got you, middle America. I'm going to bring your job backs. I'm going to stop illegal immigrants from coming in and taking your jobs. And whether illegal immigrants were really taking their jobs or not, that doesn't matter. Those people voted for Donald Trump because he was literally the only person showing any concern for them whatsoever. Donald Trump 
and and Bernie Sanders, by the way, was also. And and if you you notice, that guy had a ton of steam behind him also. But we'll get into that later. I'm not defending Donald Trump, okay? Don't at me. I'm defending the people who voted for them. I can relate to those people because I don't have my head up my tight, pretentious ass like most of this state. For the record, I voted for Joe Jorgensen. So if we're going to go to war over who the president is, uh, my team is going to get our asses kicked because we don't have that many people. Okay, But here's what I want to communicate to the people who, who hate Trump voters. If you have a problem and you want to fix the problem, you have to first understand the problem. After 2016, these people could have tried to understand Trump voters and their pain and why they voted for Trump and attempted to reach out to them. But they didn't do that. They chose to double down on calling them racists. I, I don't understand why empathetic liberals have such disdain for rural Americans. Where does that come from? Is it because most people in the big cities move to the big cities from small towns and they resent their mommy and daddy? I really don't know. But, but it's not doing any of us any good. I mean, look, you guys know I hate identity politics. I've said it a million times. Identity politics forces people to choose a side to identify with. It divides people based on skin color, gender, and sexuality. I don't understand why every single one of you cannot see how dangerous that is. That is literally what racists do. They divide people by their skin color. On the California ballot this year, we actually had the opportunity, this is true, we had the opportunity to vote on making it legal to discriminate against people based on skin color, gender, and sexuality. Can you believe that? That was put on the ballot by liberals. Now, I get that they think they wanted this because it might help some people, like it, it would make affirmative action legal or whatever, but, but think forward. What happens when someone gets in power who wants to discriminate against people with dark skin and you've now made it legal? Think about that. Now, this week, we've got Joe Biden calling for unity, and that's terrific. We need unity. But how are we supposed to unify when half the country Half the Democratic Party is calling Trump voters racist. AOC is making blacklists filled with the names of people who supported Trump. And then I was watching Bill Maher Friday night. This dude, Malcolm Nance, called Trump supporters white ISIS. So I had to look up Mal Malcolm Nance. Who is he? Oh, he just worked for the FBI and as a, a secret agent for 30 years. Now, does that sound like people looking to unify? I mean, I mean... White, I'd chuckle at white ISIS if it was a joke, you know, if, if Dave Chappelle said it. It's funny. But this guy wasn't joking. He was enraged. So I'm, I don't know. Did I miss it when Trump supporters went around inciting terror, burning down American cities? Malcolm Nance has been an intelligence officer for 30 years. And this person actually said on TV that 70 million Trump voters are racist. And that's why Trump won. And that he, intelligence officer Malcolm Nance, wants revenge. Uh, that's terrifying. So, you know, maybe Trump wasn't completely wrong when he said the deep state was out to get him. I don't know. We've had dozens of agents on CNN telling us Donald Trump is inherently evil and racist and he must be stopped. So, I mean, look, let's, let's look at this honestly. Do you guys really think the CIA and the FBI, groups of top secret agents who have been waging super top secret wars around the globe, dropping drones on the heads of black and brown people whenever they want. You really think those people care one bit if Donald Trump is a racist? 
Or do you think maybe they hate him for some other reason? I mean, I get that some of you listeners hate him because you believe he's a racist or because he's crass. And I get that. You're good people. But do you think that's why the secret agents of the FBI and CIA hate him? Or do you think it's possible at any moment that they worry that that loose cannon, Donald Trump, might blurt out something like the time when he blurted out that the officials at the Pentagon and military industrial complex don't want to end the wars because they're making billions of dollars on them? I think it might be that. I don't know. Call me crazy. I mean, have you noticed that every time he talks about bringing the troops home, the entire establishment, the deep state, and all of the media, even the, even the lefty ones, have a meltdown? Since when do since when are, are lefties pro-war? When did that happen? Has the FBI yet found the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that our kids are still dying in trying to find? Look, man, maybe Donald Trump's a racist. I don't know what's in the man's heart. I know, I know the media really tries to make it look that way and takes a lot of things out of context. And if you dig a little deeper, you find he didn't say the things the way they say he said them, but I don't know if he's a racist. Maybe he is. And maybe it's even true that 70 million people voted for Donald Trump because they're racist too. But if that is actually the case, then we need secession like yesterday. I mean, let's just divide into two countries. We'll call them, I don't know, we'll call them identitarianville for the liberals and then we can have uh jimmy bob's white power emporium for the 70 million racists because if there's 70 million racists in america there's no fixing that we're screwed but i don't believe that i know there's some racists i've met some racists they're not they're not kkk wearing a white hood racist but they're people who who have negative views of black people because they're black I also have met a lot of racists who are black, who are racist against white people. I, were, I worked in Compton for 15 years in people's homes. I've met, I've met some people like that. So it exists, but there's not 70 million racists out there. I think we're far better off than most of the world in this regard. And I've lived in 46, I'm sorry, I've been to 46 out of our 50 states and I've traveled to much of the world. So I'm not just like shooting from the, the hip. I have actual experience with people, a lot of experience. And, and look, nev- never Trumpers, they conveniently ignore the fact that Donald Trump gained points in the election in every single minority category, blacks, Mexicans, gays, women. The only place he lost points compared to 2016 was with white men. So you're telling me that literally Hitler has been running the country for four years and literally Hitler somehow got more minority votes than any Republican in 60 years. Does that make sense? So what is it? I mean, do the millions of black people who voted for Trump hate other black people? Is that it? Or do you think they're just dumb? Are you calling these people dumb? Or like Joe Biden would say, is is it that these black people, they're not really black. What's the answer here, guys? I mean, explain this. You got to explain this. You can't just ignore it. I'm, I'm married to a minority. My children are minorities. The large majority of my friends, almost all of them actually, are minorities. And I worked every single day, as I said, for 15 years inside people's homes in Compton and Watts. I, I understand why these people, some of these people might have voted for Donald Trump. It's because the left treats people now like they're nothing more than their skin color. And many people, minorities included, 
find that to be condescending and gross. A lot of minorities voted for Trump for the same reason white folk did. They're sick of the establishment screwing them over. They're sick of identity politics and they're sick of their vote being taken for granted. Voting for Donald Trump was a big middle finger to the establishment. It's also a rejection of the media, which Donald Trump has exposed for being friggin' frauds. The one-sided reporting from the media in the last four years has been ridiculous, but never more apparent, at least to me, than what I saw in the way they covered protests. They told us the lock. Remember the lockdown protests? They told us those protests were literally killing grandma. That's what they said about people who are out in the streets peacefully protesting, being locked up against their will. Now, now they call Trump a fascist, yet he wasn't the one telling everybody that they would, they could not go outside. They could not go to work. That's fascism, people. And then two weeks later, two weeks after that, literally two weeks, people were out in the streets, peacefully protesting police brutality and peacefully looting and peacefully burning down cities. And we were told that these were the good kind of protests because ending racism was more important than saving grandma's life. Then we went through all this again two weeks ago. Republicans were protesting in Pennsylvania because of the lack of the transparency in the voting tabulations. And CNN told us that this kind of protesting was subverting democracy and COVID was at all-time record high numbers. So these people, again, were heartlessly killing grandma. Now, three days after that, Biden's coordinated the next president and millions of people took to the streets to celebrate, dancing, singing, and hugging. Not one word about COVID. Regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum, you've got to see that and be like, hmm, it seems like maybe they're not playing this thing down the middle. You know? Look, guys, Trump's gone in January, most likely. Love or hate the guy, it's undeniable he did some good things and he did some bad things. He's not the greatest or worst president who ever lived. He did some good and he did some bad. On the bad side, he should, in my opinion, he should be sitting in a jail cell with his buddy Obama for continuing to give financial and military support to Saudi Arabia, supporting their genocide on hundreds of thousands of brown people in Yemen. We are actually supporting a genocide, people. Do you do you know that? Probably not, because it's never on the news. Amazing that a media is so concerned about brown people never, ever, ever, ever mentions this genocide. Okay, but I digress. Trump's greatest impact, that's that's what I want to talk about, is that he's exposed the lies and corruption in the media, in the swamp, and the military-industrial complex to millions of people who were previously blissfully unaware of it. And I'm glad he did that because I've been ranting about all three of those things for a very long time. These unethical, greedy pigs have been stealing from us for decades, and now more Americans than ever are aware of it. And I'm grateful for that. Donald Trump was like, like one big, giant red pill enema for the nation. And now, guys, we got to figure out how to come together. We can't continue to let identity politics tear us apart. I mean, did you guys notice during, during all of this of, of the past six months, have you guys noticed that all of the banks, Wall Street, the entire establishment, and most major corporations embraced identity politics and Black Lives Matter? 
Simultaneously, they were working to make sure Bernie Sanders did not become the Democratic nominee. Why? Why would they do that? Well, uh, maybe it's because Bernie wanted to tax the living bejesus out of them and take their money away. Bernie actually said that billionaires should not exist. Those exact words, billionaires should not exist. Uh, Billionaires don't want to hear that billionaires should not exist. So by embracing identity politics and Black Lives Matter, these crooks get to throw a bone to the populist left without actually sacrificing anything of worth. They know these people, they're not, they're not dummies. Okay. You don't become a billionaire by being a dummy. They know that, that if the population, if we are knee deep in a slit shit slinging battle with each other, that we'll be a little too preoccupied to notice that they're raping the American economy. All right. We need to stop shit slinging at each other and start slinging that shit at them. Cause that's the problem. I mean, look, guys, we all have our differences, all of us, but your poorest, reddest, redneck, young Trump voter has far more in common with a young black kid in the ghetto who ends up joining a gang because he's looking for guidance because he's got no dad at home because the government locked daddy up for slinging marijuana. Those two people have far more in common with each other than either of them have in common with JP Morgan. It's time we all recognize that. We're all blessed in some ways, all of us. I mean, one such blessing is that we were all born into the wealthiest country of all time at a time when the gauntlet of human life comes with the least amount of hurdles. Let's let's now put aside our feelings about how we feel about those in charge and recognize that we are not a nation full of racists. Let's find some love in our hearts for each other. We're mostly good people. And if we start there, then maybe we have a a pathway out of this mess. Find somebody who doesn't look like you, who who voted for somebody you didn't vote for, and give that person a hug. I'm 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 an open hug factory. I I voted for Joe Jorgensen, so most of you can come to me. Let's start there. All right, guys, go spread love, you dirts. Now let's get into it with with Andre. All right, guys, I got some exciting news. The dad is now not only a 47-year-old professional athlete, but I'm now also a 47-year-old professional underwear model. That's right, guys. We got a new sponsor, sheathunderwear.com. These guys are amazing. Uh, Six months of lockdown has paid off as fat party dad has become buff underwear model dad. Um, And look, guys, I know you all know I've gone the first 46 years of my life commando, and that's for a couple reasons. Um, Number one. I'm a free spirit. And number two, I've got a lot of beef down there. And, um, you know, underwear, it mashes it all up. It makes it uncomfortable. It makes it sweaty. It's, I just, I've, I've never dug it. But for the last year, I've been wearing sheath. They've solved all those problems. They got two pouches, two pouches in their underwear, one for the peener and one for the baby seed maker. These underwear, they keep everything separate and cozy in their own little pockets, and it just solves all those problems. It's amazing. It's like a little blanket for your balls and another one for the peen. It's amazing. You know what? I mean, like, when I was a kid, when I ate, I didn't like when my peas would touch my mashed potatoes, so I'd build, like, physical barriers between everything on the plate. I didn't like the things that touch. And that's what these underwear do, but before you're junk. And I'm telling you, it's just the greatest thing of all time. And the material they're made out of, 
You know, honestly, I don't know what it is. I probably should educate myself on that, but it's made out of something special. It's, it's probably made by NASA. Um, you can go on the website, sheathunderwear.com, and read about it. That's what you should do. All I know is this material keeps everything fresh and cool all day long. It's like, it's like, what's it like? It's like having your little, like, personal secretary. No, a, a little personal angel down there all day long just gently blowing cool air on your balls. You can't beat it. These underwear, they're so perfectly comfortable that I even wear them to bed. I've been sleeping naked since I was six years old. I wear these to bed. I mean, they're more comfortable than the sheets. Guys, look, you got to try them. And, and ladies, they make panties for you too. Now, I know you don't need the secret little pockets, but you're going to love the fabric. It's super comfortable. So check them out and get some for your man. Her never suffer from sweaty stink balls ever again. Um, now, look, I don't know. I don't think this is a story I've told on the podcast before, but when the bride got preggers the first time, and before I even knew she was pregnant, in fact, this story is how I found out. I came home from playing volleyball like I did nearly every day, and I took my shorts off, and she literally yelled out, gross, Matt, your balls stink. Yelled that to me. Now, I mean, we all know that pregnant ladies, they get hormonal and moody, but they also develop like superhero sense of smell. And she shouted that out at me and it hurt my feelings and gave me a little bit of a complex for the next nine months, to be quite honest. And, and I took special care of my, my grooming. That's when I started trimming down there and, and uh, taking care of the old boy. But if I had sheath underwear at that time, it wouldn't have been a problem and it would have saved me a lot of heartache. So guys, um, get these underwear. I promise you will absolutely love them. You'll throw out all your old, ratty, holy, crusty underwear, and you go 100% sheath. So check them out, sheathunderwear.com, best stuff on earth. All right, guys, let's get into it. Okay, guys, welcome to The Dad Presents. Uh, we got a great guest today. I'm super excited about talking to this gentleman. His name is Andre Antonopoulos. He's maybe the world's biggest Bitcoin and blockchain expert. Um, Andre, so happy to have you on the show. Um, how you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, um, I started buying Bitcoin probably 2013 or 14 after hearing you on the Joe Rogan experience for the first time. You just you oh. sold me, you sold me on it as far as it being the future. And so first of all, thank you because it's done very well since then. No, um, no, no. but, but I don't think like, for example, I've tried to get other people into Bitcoin, a lot of other people. I don't think most people really grasp what it is. Can you give us like a dummies version of what Bitcoin is? Sure. Um, Bitcoin is an independently operated system of money that runs on the internet. Um, that is a pure digital, pure internet form of money. It, um, it's, does not have an owner, it is not owned by a company, it is not uh, controlled by anyone. Instead, it works as a collection of uh, software systems that all uh, collaborate together to create a very, very secure, completely global uh, system of money uh, that is completely independent of any government and corporation. And uh, it's, it's often seen as an investment, uh, but my primary focus is as a technology and as a mechanism for a global internet of money. 
Right. Yeah. That's exciting. So I guess there's, there's two follow-up questions. Now I kind of get it. I've been, I've been in the game for a while, but I think people's first fear would be like, well, money, paper money that I hold in my hand, it has value. They don't necessarily understand why it has value, but mm-hmm. they understand that it has value. Mm-hmm. Um, it has value because it's backed by the U.S. government, right? That's, that's the truth of it. It's not backed by anything else, and it's backed by consumer confidence. Why, right. why does Bitcoin... Like, why should they feel secure in investing in Bitcoin? What, where's the value coming from? So I, I think it's important to understand that uh, a currency like the U.S. dollar is, it, it's not that it's backed by the U.S. government, um, because it, in fact, the currency itself is operated by an independent entity called the Federal Reserve, um, which is actually not a government organization. It's Isn't that a, crazy? It's an yeah. independent uh, company, effectively, that's, that's run by banks. Um, the, the bottom line is that the, the second part you said is correct. The, the reason money has value is because of confidence. Uh, money has value because it's used in an economy and because it carries with it the expectation that if I take this to someone tomorrow, I can buy a dozen eggs with it. Right. That understanding that it's likely to continue to have value tomorrow is what keeps it valuable. And of course, if you look at the 194 currencies that exist from, from nation states, um, the perception we have of, of the value of the U.S. dollar is fairly unique. Uh, the vast majority of countries often have difficulty maintaining that confidence in the system uh, because sometimes mm-hmm. you take it to the shop and they don't give you a dozen eggs. Um, cause today it's only two eggs and mm-hmm. tomorrow <laughs> it's a dozen dollars for one egg. And then the day after it's $120 for one egg. Um, so the reason Bitcoin has value today, uh, is for the same reason the dollar has value, which is that there is an economy, uh, behind it that uses it as a currency. Um, there, is, there are a lot of people who invest in it. And as a result, because they find it useful, because they accept it or spend it for products and services, that creates uh, a degree of confidence. And as long as it continues to be used, it continues to have uh, value. Right. I think it's more useful to think of money not as a thing that has value. Uh, money is more a language for expressing the value that our activities create. Um, and if you think about it that way, mm-hmm. whether you use one language or another doesn't change the value of the activities that we uh, create. So if I create activities, I create videos, I produce some labor or whatever, and I make that available to be transacted in the language of Bitcoin, that gives the Bitcoin value because the activities I'm creating have value. The value right. isn't the Bitcoin. Right. Uh, just like the value of the US dollar isn't in the dollar itself. In fact, those pieces of linen objectively um, are, are not valuable per se. Um, it's, it's what I can get for them. Uh, so we often hear in economics this concept of intrinsic value, uh, that something has value on its own intrinsically. And, and that doesn't really exist. No, um, not with money. Yeah. And it doesn't even exist for commodities. Uh, it's all about the context. Uh, a glass of water, if you're standing um, next to a bottling plant in the Great Lakes region, the hmm. nearest, you know, the largest concentration of fresh water on the planet, is almost worthless. Right. A glass of water in the Sahara Desert when you can't get one 
is almost priceless. So it's context that gives value even to the things that we value and think have intrinsic value. And, and You're talking basic supply and demand right there. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. exactly. And the, the only reason Bitcoin is, is unusual from that perspective and it, it, it kind of breaks some of our concepts is because we, we don't really understand how money works in the first place um, because we've only been speaking one language of money our entire lives, usually the one we were born into, and therefore we don't see the construct of money as language in general. Um, but when you break out of that, uh, well, I've only ever used one, then it's easier to understand. Sure. And it's easier to understand for people who travel a lot, obviously, because then they get to speak multiple languages of money when they go to different places uh, and they can quickly figure out how that works. Yeah, I like, I like the, um, there's an, I've heard different analogies, but there's one where like, let's say I'm an apple farmer, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to buy a house. I would have to trade maybe 2 million apples to some guy who, owns a house to get equal value. And he might not want 2 million apples. So then I got to deal with 20 other people to get the trade apples, to get the things that the guy who owns the house wants. And money gives us a way to kind of quantify, quantify the value that we put into society so that we can trade our net worth for other goods and services that we want. And that doesn't need to be the dollar. It can be anything now yes that's uh, that's one of the three fundamental properties that we usually see in money mm-hmm. what you just described is what is called by economists the unit of account function which is a way to measure the value of a specific thing in a universal unit so that just like we have feet inches meters kilograms um so that we don't have to say is this apple heavier than that apple how do we know um similarly for value, we use money as a unit of measure. That's one. There's two other functions of money, however, which are quite distinct. One is a medium of exchange, which is that it's not just a matter of deciding how much value the apples have, but it but it's also the ability to use something else to represent that value that you physically hand over or transmit um, that is universal, universally accepted. Um, and that convenience of having it in that case, it's it's really a means uh, mm-hmm. for transacting. And the third function of money, which is in, enormously important, is the store of value, which is that your apples will rot. Um, and, and that's a fundamental problem with any commodity, which is why we want something that is durable through time, that will maintain more or less the same value that we measured when we initially acquired it, will continue to be recognized for a long period of time, uh, and that we can basically shift value through the time dimension. What that means is I have value today, but I don't need something with that today. But I know that in the future, I want to uh, be able to buy something. Um, how do I carry that value to the future um, without losing it? And that's the, the store value perspective. Right. So um, physical exchange, in space, measurement, units of account, and finally, movement through time, store value. Uh, and you can measure any money by how well it fits those three properties, um, which, which makes it much more interesting. Right. That, that was great. Thank you. I, I hope that helps some people. So you, earlier, you mentioned the Federal Reserve, and you mentioned that it's privately owned. And I've mentioned that many times on the show. And, and every time new people hear that, it kind of blows their mind. Like, 
the Federal Reserve is in charge of all of our monetary policy. They yes. decide when to make money, how much to make. Um, and it's not owned by the government, which is us. It's owned by a bunch of bankers whom we don't even know who they are. It's like top secret. We don't even know who owns the Federal Reserve. They print the money and they, they essentially give it to themselves. So here, here's my question. If Bitcoin eventually becomes the main way we exchange goods and services, or even one of the common ways, because right now people aren't really using it in that way too much, isn't that a massive threat to the Federal Reserve and the power of the government? Um, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it just a threat to government in general? Um, it is in the very long term, yes. Um, because it, it removes um, one of one of the fundamental powers of sovereignty. So the sovereignty is applied through the monetary system. Sovereignty meaning the power of uh, the government or king or emperor or whatever. So one of the ways that the overarching governor of society applies their power is through money. Um, and, and having private monies out there undermines that. But that was also the case of how um, private newspapers uh, undermine uh, having one state newspaper. Um, private phone companies undermine having one state phone company. Private right. airlines undermine having one state airline company. Yeah, those and, are all good things. And it's in market economies, we seem to understand intuitively why it's better to have competition and why... Um, why it's not necessarily a good thing to have a monopoly that is controlled by the state. We understand why a single TV station, newspaper, airline, etc., is not a good thing. But not for money? Why not? Uh, it's, it's a market good like anything else. Um, and so many economists for years have said there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to have private money. Now, whether it threats, threatens the power of government or not, um, that really, and this is quite funny how it works, which is that when you look at the reactions of various governments to the very concept of Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin acts almost like holding up a mirror and it shows a, the true colors of your mm -hmm. government. So if your government is in, in, in kind of in a uh, almost automatic way opposed to you being able to control your own money, to you being able to transact with other individuals without interference, to you being yeah. able to invest in whatever you want. What does that say about you? Not much. What does it say about your government? Lots, right? Mm -hmm. So the more extreme measures you see from governments with regards to self-determination, expression, and uh, commercial activity, that just tells you how authoritarian they are. Yes, uh, it does. It doesn't really tell you much about the system of money. And of course, it's not just Bitcoin. And I don't believe in the idea that there will be a I honestly don't think that Bitcoin will displace all other forms of money. I think it's done the opposite. What it's done is it's opened the door for a lot more competition. So we went from 194 national currencies to now thousands of digital currencies. I don't think we're going to go back to one. It may be the strongest, but but. Mm -hmm. Competition is the, is and choice is what's happening here. Yes. Um, yeah. But okay. So yeah. All I agree with all that. Um, when I'm talking about stripping their power, um, Bitcoin is relatively. It, well, it's 
anonymous. You can transact anonymously. Like uh, there was, you know, the problem several years ago with Silk Road where people were using Bitcoin to to buy drugs illegally or have people killed. Even um, it allows for for transactions that are anonymous. And in that way, doesn't that strip the federal government's ability to tax us? And Ray Dario, who's the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is the world's largest hedge fund, said that he expects the, the federal government of America to come in and, and start restricting Bitcoin for that reason. Do you see that as potentially happening? Um, well, let me take a step back and first, um, I think it's, it's, uh, dangerous to say that Bitcoin is anonymous. It's not, it is pseudonymous, meaning that you have an identifier, which is not directly linked to your name, but can be linked under certain circumstances. And that you, you have an anonymous, uh, you have a pseudonymous sorry, account number effectively, or several of them, thousands, if you want. Um, but, uh, through your activities, you can reveal links to those accounts. Um, mm -hmm. and so, so it's actually less anonymous than, uh, than cash. Now, we've had cash for thousands of years. Good point. Um, for, for thousands of years, money has been, uh, completely anonymized, a bearer bond that can be transacted by anyone, held by anyone without confirmation of identity. Um, somehow civilization did not destroy itself under those circumstances. In fact, if anything, what we're seeing is this idea that all payments should be under surveillance, which um, emerged in places like uh, China and Russia and other places um, very strongly in the last decade. Um, that idea is both novel um, terrifying and uh, very, very dangerous. Yes. And I, I don't think it's ever going to happen primarily because we now have alternative options. So uh, yes, Bitcoin is pseudonymous. There are other cryptocurrencies that are far more private um, and those will exist. And mm -hmm. so if governments try to take measures to control these, they're going to achieve one of two things. One, they're going to push the illicit use um, of these currencies into kind of more dark corners of the internet. Um, but people will simply migrate to the thing that will give them stronger privacy. Uh, and secondarily, they're going to force the evolution of these systems to become even more stealthy and private. Uh, that's not necessarily a good thing for society. Uh, Bitcoin is uh, relatively benign from a perspective of privacy. It's got some fundamental weaknesses in terms of privacy. And so um, I, I, don't really, I don't really think that that's the direction we're going. I think that given what happened in 2009 with the launch of Bitcoin, the possibility of completely private, untraceable global money uh, now exists. And, and it, because it exists, um, if you create a situation where um, it is illegal to use or it is illegal to use privately, then the only people who get to use it are criminals. They mm -hmm. will still be able to use it. There's no yeah. question about that. Mm -hmm. Both criminals within the government who are using it to hide their uh, various forms of corruption and criminals outside of government. Yes. The only question is whether the vast middle class will get to use and have any kind of privacy or whether privacy itself is criminalized. And I, I think it's a very dangerous path to go down, yeah. of course, because 
those in power are, are in a perfect position to both abuse the surveillance of others and evade it for themselves. Yeah, well, we can already see in our country from the Patriot Act and what, Ed, what we saw f- from Edward Snowden that the government does abuse uh, privacy and we don't have much privacy. So when I, when I see this idea of uh, money that is pseudonymous and money that strips the power from the government, um, I see that as a good thing. I, I don't see that as a threat to society. I think that's an amazing advancement for society for us to start to take some of the power back. Um, so let, let's shift gears a little bit because I, I have a, a, a specific question. This election we just went through was a just a nightmare. It, it seems like instead of progressing te- technologically, um, we're going backwards. Like we're we're still doing paper ballots and now we're using like 1900s technology where we're mailing in ballots with the postal service mm-hmm. is there any way we could run elections using blockchain technology um possibly in the not so near future uh but i don't think it's a good idea for a variety of reasons Blockchains can record information and record it immutably but if you put lies onto a blockchain you immutably record lies they don't actually solve the problem. Um, I'm a strong believer that the the, um, the best way to run elections is to use simple, uncomplicated, transparent, and auditable mechanisms that can be inspected by everyone. Um, and paper is a fantastic mechanism for that. Um, and it provides for very high levels of security as long as you have a process by which all of the interested parties Uh, can observe how things are playing out. Now, um, every developing country in the world manages to achieve very high levels of security in elections and at the same time, high-speed reporting of results. The reason we don't do it in the United States is because it's deliberately engineered to disenfranchise millions of voters um, to prevent the expression of democracy, And all of those things are features, not bugs of the technology. Um, Every developed nation can do it. We choose not to. And we choose not to because it serves uh, the disenfranchisement of uh, the voter. Um, And and this election is a perfect example in places where um, ballots uh, are still slow and being counted uh, you know, two, two weeks later, it's because the legislatures in those places purposely prohibited counting of the ballots before the election was over. Um, to create chaos, to create delays, and in those delays, try to shove a whole amount of questioning of the fundamental electoral process. Um, The end result, in in my mind, is that simple, auditable, transparent technology, and I've worked as uh, both a poll worker and a precinct supervisor in elections in the U.S. and also in elections in the U.K. and also in elections in Greece, where I come from, and I've observed this in three different countries, and I can tell you that it is absolutely possible to run fair, fast, and secure elections with paper if, we, if that's what we want to do. The problem is we don't want to do it. Introducing an immature, complex, non-transparent technology like blockchain mm-hmm. is going to make this worse. It will give opportunities for people to steal these elections 
um, by creating even more confusion. And most people say, well, come on, Andreas, you're a huge Bitcoin fan. How can you possibly say the blockchain doesn't make collections better? Listen, we have to understand that this technology, and like any technology, has some things that it's good for, um, and not trying to simply do everything just because we have a hammer, treat everything like a nail. Sure. Well, I mean, that's that's an honest answer. It's not the answer I wanted to hear, but it's an honest answer. And and like you said, they were if they were trying to sow chaos, they mission accomplished. Um, right. I feel like I feel like the best way to do elections, and we don't need to go off on tangent on this, but I feel like there's no reason in 2020 we can't do it on our phones. Like we do everything else on our phones. I do banking on my phones. I feel like we should be able to to get there with facial recognition technology and all that. But moving on, we we are where we are. Um, I, talking about the blockchain, I guess I guess we need a little uh, description. Uh, uh, like you gave us a dummy down version of what Bitcoin is. Can you do that for what the blockchain is? Oh, sure. Um, blockchain is a data structure that is used as part of Bitcoin in order to record um, the outcome of uh, the coordination between all of the participants in the Bitcoin system. Yeah. So every transaction that happens um, is then batched together and every 10 minutes that is validated and it is recorded in a data structure called the blockchain. Now, a lot of people say the word blockchain to mean to encompass the whole technology, um, which isn't exactly correct. Uh, in fact, the blockchain itself is the least interesting technology in the system. Um, the really interesting technology is, is what's called a consensus algorithm, which is how you decide what gets recorded on the blockchain. Um, the blockchain simply manages the recording. It's a bit like looking at a car and going, well, the transmission is the most important thing. Well, in, in some ways, yes, but the role of the transmission is simply to make the engine get to the wheels. The role of a blockchain is to make the consensus algorithm be recorded by everyone. Um, you can't do it without it. Mm -hmm. But that's not the most interesting thing um, in there. So is it essentially, is it the verification of transactions? It's a database. It's a database. It's to, a database. What's interesting is how you decide what gets recorded in that database. It's a distributed database. It's just a recording in And everybody, everybody has access to that database. So the, Well, the, everyone has their own project. copy. Uh, yes. which is which is what's interesting about it. Everyone has their own copy. They don't have access to it because it's not a central thing that they have to go somewhere to have access. Everybody can, if they want to, create their own local copy. Like, for example, I have a copy on this computer. Um, and every 10 minutes, it gets updated um, with the latest results. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is, if I have a copy of the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain in this case, and you have a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain, how do we make sure that your copy and my copy agree on what's recorded. And that's the real invention of Bitcoin, and it's called a consensus algorithm. Uh, it uses a, a process called mining. Um, yes. But it's really interesting how you coordinate computers around the world to arrive at the same answer as to what's actually recorded without having to trust each other or anyone else, without anybody being able to hijack mm -hmm. that process. Um, and that was the real invention of Bitcoin. Yeah, so the, the mining process is the process that's verifying these transactions and making sure everybody's on the same page. And for doing that mining, that's where people are rewarded newly created Bitcoin. Is that accurate? That, that's yes, what keeps that's, it running? Right. Yes. That's what keeps the security going. It's the coordination and security mechanism. Okay. So I've, I've recently read that the cost 
of running these mining operations to verify these transactions, the cost of doing that is starting to exceed the value of Bitcoin. Is that, is that true, number one? And, and number two, if it's true, uh, no, what it's happens? Not. So it's not true. We'll just cut off the number two there and save us some time. It's not true because mining itself is a dynamic operation um, and a dynamic market. What that means is that um, every two weeks, the difficulty of doing the mining gets recalibrated based on how many people are trying to do it. So the mm. more people who try to do mining, um, the harder it gets to do. And the fewer people who try to do mining, if, if fewer people, like you turn your system off and you, ah. people, um, then the difficulty gets easier. Uh, all calibrated around. So it's, it's kind of like a self-regulating free market. In a way. It, it is 100% a regulated okay. free market, all calibrated to one, one thing, which is the timing of a block. So it recalibrates to deliver 10-minute blocks. If people are doing it and it's too easy, then you get less than 10-minute blocks. They come out faster. And you're like, okay, we need to slow everyone down by making it more difficult for the next two weeks. And then if it's on the other way, obviously... Um, we need to speed it up to make it easier for people. So as people join or leave the mi mining process, uh, every two weeks it recalibrates to keep things. That means that because supply and demand in mining match at that 10-minute block size, it means that mining is always just barely profitable on average, a bit more profitable for those who are doing it very efficiently, and a bit less profitable to unprofitable for those who are doing it less efficiently. Uh, and who are then forced to exit the market because it's no longer profitable. Um, but, it, but that's a constantly calibrating thing. And if the price goes up, that encourages more people to participate. But then as soon as they participate, the difficulty goes up too, mm -hmm. and, and it recalibrates back to 10 minutes. So mining is always profitable, barely. Uh, and it's always just the right amount of mining that we need for now um, because of that dynamic uh, mechanism. That's a, that's a genius setup. Um, that that right there is one of the more genius things behind this system. It's how you get global coordination without anybody being able to control things. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to Bitcoin and, and the mining, one thing that I, I, I love about, I think that excites a lot of people is I don't know how often it is, but every, every so many years, uh, the mining is, is halved. They call it the, the halving. And eventually at some point, almost no Bitcoin is going to be produced. So it's like a yes. finite resource. Uh, yes. Our current uh, government money, not only is it not finite, they're printing more than ever. We just had a couple yes. trillion printed with coronavirus, with that stimulus. We're going to have more coming up. Um, we're $30 trillion in debt in this country, which mm -hmm. is just a, a number that no, no person can wrap their mind around. It doesn't even make sense. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see any way around it that we're going to have a, a depression and eventually the, the dollar is going to go belly up. It just has to. It do eventually, the world is going to stop respecting the dollar as, like you talked about earlier, the, um, confidence in it. Eventually, confidence. some other countries are going to have no confidence in it because we're not being responsible. At that point, is there any real legitimate shot that Bitcoin kind of becomes the standard bearer of trading goods and services? I mean, um, a lot of considerations go into um, 
the currency that leads the world and is the one that is used for international transactions. Um, that title is the world reserve currency, as it's known. Or a world reserve currency simply means that other countries hold reserves of that currency. And yeah. the dollar has achieved that through a number of means, but it's not just confidence in the U.S. government. That's part of it. It's also... Um, a deal made in the 1970s uh, with the Saudis that they would only sell oil uh, denominated in dollars that basically locked down that market and forced even countries that hate our guts um, <laughs> to use dollars and to hold and have to have dollars on reserve simply so they can buy oil on the international market. Um, so if, if, if you like, the, the thing that the US dollar is, is backed by is oil and the war machine to support mm -hmm. the dictatorship. Exactly, the war Arabia's machine. Is that, why, is that yeah. why we always, like, we yes. go to war with every country in the Middle East, but we always have Saudi Arabia's back. We have their back right now in a genocide against Yemen. I mean, we go to that? We go to war with, which, with any country within a matter of months after they announce that they're going to sell oil to people with another currency. That's wow. exactly what happened. That's, That's because what happened. Yes. Any the country dollar that is backed by oil because of that deal. And that's also coincidentally the 70s is when our debt started climbing. Yes. Well, he, and, and there's a, but, but that's one of the factors. There's many other factors as well. Um, and confidence, of course, is part of it. But Bitcoin doesn't overnight suddenly acquire all of these magical properties that make it desirable. There's a lot of, uh, obviously, it's a huge change from what has come before. And there are some arguments that you could make that with backing the U.S. dollar, even the countries that are strategically opposed to the U.S. give the U.S. massive leeway to, to, to create debt, which, which creates a, a very, very big advantage economically for the U.S. Effectively, it gives us very low interest rates on our money creation so that um, uh, we can finance a lot of things. So we get this bonus, if you like, uh, as uh, Americans from that status. And why would Russia and China give us this bonus? Well, because um, because of they have to for oil and because they have to for other reasons to do with international payment systems. One of the interesting thing, things about Bitcoin or something very much like a Bitcoin that emerges as a neutral standard is that no one strategically controls it. Meaning that uh, you can say, well, I don't control this currency, but at least my enemies don't either. Mm -hmm. So it's neutral. Um, and that can create a very interesting strategic situation where all countries recognize that there's benefit to having a neutral standard that no one can control is better than having one that someone can control and that someone keeps taking advantage of that control. But so many things would need to happen for that. And it would be such a major reorientation of geopolitics. Um, I, I don't see that happening in, in any time soon. I'd be mm -hmm. very, very surprised if I see that in my lifetime. However, just because I don't see it doesn't mean it won't happen. This could be a black swan event, right? Yep. Nobody can anticipate something like that. This is much more. <laughs> I mean, we definitely learned that in 2020. So yeah, yeah. Or you know, I'm I'm a bit older. You know, 1989, fall of the Soviet Union and the Berlin right. Wall. Mm -hmm. No one was anticipating stuff like that. 
I think there's a bigger chance of what emerges being some kind of synthetic currency that is uh, based on a basket currency exchange basket, um, kind of like the International Monetary Fund Special Drawing Rights or SDR, uh, which is used already to coordinate trade between countries. And, and so that's basically a synthetic central currency run by an independent organization. Uh, the problem, Doesn't that just give power to that one central organization then? Exactly, it does. Um, and then the question for everybody else is, do, would they rather give that organization power versus the, the U.S. government? Yeah. Um, or, and, and I, think I don't like either of those options. I think eventually the world starts looking for these systems that are mathematically defined and neutral as a very, very uh, good source of international value because of their neutrality. Okay. Um, you've been very generous with your time. I, I know we were scheduled for a half hour. I just got a couple more things because you kind of you blew my mind with that Saudi Arabia thing. I, I'm not sure I heard that before. If I did, it, it didn't really oh. stick. Um, so in essence, you can boil down all of our wars in the Middle East. And I, that's my biggest pet peeve with politics is these wars. They've gone on for 20 years. Uh, there seems to be no reason. That's ultimately what they're all about is protecting our money interests, protecting Saudi Arabia's control of oil. And if, for example, if, if we got to a point where oil lost value, like, you know, new, new technologies came up, Green New Deal, all that, wouldn't that crush the value of the dollar if oil lost its value? Oh, yeah. I mean, imagine what people would do to suppress the development of renewable energy. Um, listen, I, I don't want this to sound conspiratorial because it isn't. I mean, this is very... Well, it's not... There's, it's very, not conspiratorial, well, but... So th this is very easily verifiable historical fact. Yeah, that's not, that's not conspiracy. This was a deal fact. done between yeah. the King of Saudi Arabia by Henry Kissinger in, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. It was a 1973, I think. I'm going to look um, it up as soon as I get off and everybody and else should too. I mean, we, we are, we've been, there's, there's a genocide right now going on that you never see on the news in Yemen, executed by Saudi Arabia. And we started giving money and military support to the government of Saudi Arabia it, during the Obama administration, and we continue it now through the Trump administration. I'm oh, sure it's been continuing. going. It's been going nonstop since the 1970s. But but uh, I mean that's not even the most shocking. For forget, uh, yes, of course, genocide in in Yemen is is tragic. If you really want to see, if you really want to understand how uh, unbelievable this is for Americans, just go to the most selfish thing. I mean, um, what could the Saudis get away with? Um, that would deeply wound America and we just let them get away with, I don't know, uh, crashing two planes into the tower. Right. Yep. We know they did that. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> the, the documentation is all there. Uh -huh. Nothing happened. No. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I would, I would very much like to see a world in which we take into consideration the welfare of every human being on the planet and, the, and their uh, rights to live a life without uh, war, famine, genocide. Um, but I, you know, the, the problem is that even when it's, you, you see a direct attack against, um, against America organized by the very same people that yep. we've been funding, nothing happens. So no, that doesn't it, trump the, the value of, of money. American lives doesn't even trump it. Right. 
So, um, so, so that tells you how, how deep and pernicious this relationship is. Um, yes. And it's not a conspiracy. It's a, it's an easily verifiable, um, it's an easily verifiable fact uh, from an economic perspective. It's interesting because what that does is when you start to understand that you realize that after the 1970s, when gold stopped backing uh, currencies, that was replaced by a commodity and that commodity is oil. So it gives you another perspective, okay. which is that the national currencies that we have today effectively are backed by oil. Yeah. So um, we went off the gold standard and now we're essentially on the oil standard. It's just that, that, is, that is absolutely correct because on the supply side, we um, protect Saudi Arabia's interests. But on the other side, we generate demand because China can only buy oil hmm. um, with dollars or could. In the last five years, this has started to break down. Um, and that's the, the, the de-dollarization of the old markets. Now, Russia, China, and others are buying directly um, with their own currencies to um, destabilize that dollar hold. Um, so that, that world environment is changing. It was a whole era from the 1970s until now. But it's interesting because commodity-based currencies create artificial demand and support artificial demand for those commodities. So it also gives you an insight into why it is so difficult to implement renewable energy uh, and move away from fossil fuels. And one of the big mm -hmm. reasons is that it is also the commodity that underlies our monetary system. When you hear people say that Bitcoin's use of electricity is environmentally damaging, um, you can only say that with a straight face if you completely ignore um, how the actual money we use until now works, um, because that actually is uh, underpinned by oil, mm -hmm. which is far more damaging. Yep. It, also, it also explains why we spend so much money on our military. Like we have to strike the fear into the hearts of these other nations that you're not to mess with our oil relationship. Wow. I mean, good stuff. Um, I got to let you go. Um, just one last question. I'm sure you've been asked a, sure. a million times, but I, I got to ask it. Are you the genius Satoshi Nakamoto? Oh, absolutely not. Um, and, and I think it's very clear from both my writing style and, um, and how late I got into, into the game and that I was doing other things uh, before now. No, not smart enough to uh, not even close to be Satoshi. Um, I am very grateful that I was able to find this technology at a time when, um, when there weren't that many people who explained it well. Uh, and I was able to apply that particular skill and, and, and help explain it well. And it's, it's enriched my life tremendously. Uh, and it's given me an opportunity to do something I really love, uh, which is to do this education about technology, but not technology as this abstract thing, but technology as a critical component that has sociopolitical economic implications for the future. This technology is not neutral. This technology is... Um, is deeply impactful on how uh, society, politics, and economics play out over the next uh, oh, yeah. many decades. Can change and, the world. And to me, that that's fascinating. And and so, yeah, I'm not Satoshi Nakamoto, but I'm very grateful to uh, uh, he, she, or them who did it. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you're a great advocate. You do a great job of explaining these things for regular folk like me and, and my listeners. I really appreciate it. Um, I mean, yeah, it seems like Bitcoin and blockchain can, can really change the world for the better. So yeah. um, I encourage all my listeners to, to learn more about it. Where can, where can my listeners like, uh, find out more about you and, and, and read about things you've, you've educated the public on? Well, before uh, one parting thought, if you allow me, is a lot of people look at this and the first thing they think of is how do I invest in this? I think that's the wrong way to look at it. It's also a dangerous way to look at it. These are volatile um, systems as investments. It's still very mature technology. It's still early days. So in terms of if you were interested in doing more with this, first, learn. And second is not invest. It's actually earn. Um, If you look at this as a mechanism for earning, where you say, listen, I've got a skill. I cut hair, I I mow lawns, whatever it is. Uh, Can I find someone who's willing to pay me for that skill in Bitcoin? You get a completely different perspective when it's part of your income than if you simply treat it as something where you park money as an investment, where you're converting dollars to, say, Bitcoin and back, Mm -hmm. um, but instead earning and spending Bitcoin directly. Um, You know, you don't buy U.S. dollars. um, You earn them. Right, and then right. spend them. Uh, and so if you take that shift in perspective and you look at it from that perspective, um, since 2013, uh, I have very rarely bought um, or even sold Bitcoin. I have earned and spent Bitcoin directly, uh, cool. which, mean, which, which gives you a very different perspective. Are there, if, are there any corporations, like big corporations out there who, are, who, who like offer the option to pay employees in Bitcoin? Has that happened yet? Um, a very few, mostly the ones that work in our industry. But um, but interestingly enough, you can arrange through a third party company um, to have part of your paycheck um, uh, deducted and transmitted directly to you as Bitcoin. Um, oh, wow. I believe one of the companies that does that is called Bitwage. Um, you know, just like you can uh, in your paycheck, you can say, "I want this. This much goes to my health insurance. This one goes to taxes." And then you say, "This one." I want to go to a 401k or a savings account or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can just have them add a line entry that transfers um, to an account that converts it to Bitcoin for you. So every paycheck you get a bit. Right. Um, you can do it that way, but you can also do it more importantly in the informal economy by, you know, not through an employer, by, by being self-employed, by right. offering up services and products. Anyway, if people want to find out more about what I do, um, my online nickname is A Antonop, A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P. You can find me under that nickname on Twitter uh, and on YouTube, where you will find more than 500 educational videos for free. Um, currently launched today a workshop on my website. Um, you can take a, a free workshop called the Introduction to Bitcoin and Open Blockchains on my website. Uh, and we have a new workshop that came out today called Choose Your Wallet, which teaches you how to um, find and pick your first cryptocurrency wallet so you can start engaging with this. Fantastic. Thank you so much, man. I, I really enjoyed this. I, I've, I've, I've been following you for a long time and uh, you've, you. opened, you've opened so many eyes to the world of Bitcoin and crypto in general. And I really feel like, I feel like it's going to change the world. And, and a, a big part of that 
has to do with spreading the message. So yes. you're, you're the, the biggest advocate of that. Thank, oh, thank you, you. and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Hey, guys. This podcast is brought to you by CBDMD.com. Uh, great, high-quality CBD products for your aches and pains. You use the code word that Dad presents for 15% off, and you put a nickel in your boy's pocket and help me feed them kids. Um, I just got back from the Pacific. I was doing some prone paddle boarding. Um, it's basically a long surfboard. You lay down and you paddle with your hands. I'm, I'm trying to build up to do the annual race to Catalina and back, which is about 30 miles. And as it stands, I can do about a mile. I had a long way to go. Um, but I'll tell you what, without those CBD products, you guys know I got titanium plates on my neck and shoulder. I wouldn't be able to go five yards. Um, Laying down on my belly, looking up out at the ocean and holding that position while paddling would be excruciating for me. CBD has got me to a point where I can not only assume that position, but I can paddle for a mile and I'm going to keep at it and I'm going to do that Catalina race by next year. So go to the website, use the code the dad presents, get that high quality CBD and uh, help, help your boy Matt make some money. All right. So uh, let's get into it. 